there are over 100 different references in 16 different books of the New Testament to one subject. There are over 100 references in 16 different books of the New Testament to one subject matter. You know what it is? The kingdom of God. Now, I would submit to you this morning that if God puts something in the Bible one time, that makes it important. Amen? I mean, he doesn't have to put it in the Bible multiple times in order for us to go, you know, this is probably important, right? I mean, if something's in the book one time, we need to pay attention to it. But if over 100 different times in 16 different places and books in the New Testament, he mentions the kingdom of God, maybe, just maybe, we might want to pay extra attention to that, right? One of the references that's listed in that 100 list is... In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, in Matthew 6 and verse 33, Jesus said, but seek what? First. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. He said, seek first. Notice, he didn't say put it in your top 10 list. Jesus made a beeline to this thing of the kingdom of God, and he said, the absolute number one priority in your life as a disciple of mine is to be the kingdom of God. I got to be honest with you, when God first called my family to relocate to Las Vegas, Nevada, to join in his activity of starting this church now 13 years ago. When God brought us here, the kingdom of God was something that God had begun to stir about in my heart. But it was not something that I really fully understood. And over my 13 years, this Christmas, my family and I will be here 13 years. Over my 13 years in Las Vegas, if there's one subject matter that God has just totally transformed my understanding of, if there's one subject matter over the last 13 years that I would say, man, this is the thing that God has been teaching me and challenging me on and shaping my life around, it is this issue of the kingdom of God. I want to begin by kind of answering the question, what is the kingdom of God? For sake of time, I want to give you a definition because unfortunately, if you were to ask a hundred Christians, what's the kingdom of God? I'm afraid most of us would not only not be able to say it's the top priority in our lives, but we wouldn't even know what that was. So I want to give you a definition this morning. I want to put it up on the screen. Here it is. The kingdom of God is God's sovereign activity in the world, resulting in people being in right relationship with himself. I want you to read that definition with me out loud. You ready? One, two, three. God's sovereign activity in the world, resulting in people being in right relationship with himself. That is the kingdom 
of God. Let me say it to you another way. It's the the big picture of what God is doing in the world. You do realize as we sit here this morning in a church service in Las Vegas, Nevada, having been refreshed from an extra hour of sleep last night, you do realize that as we sit here this morning, we are serving a God who is alive and at work all over the world. Listen, and this thing we call Christianity is moving somewhere. You get that, right? I mean, it's not going to always be like this. It's not going to always be like we know it today. And sometimes we get caught up in the culture of the world that we live in, and we can just get caught up in the routine of this thing called life and Christianity, this little piece of our life over here that we really celebrate on Sundays. And we can miss the biblical reality that this thing is moving somewhere. From Genesis to Revelation, the whole story of the Bible is moving towards a grand climax that we read about in Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5, the Bible says that around the throne of Jesus at the end of the age, there will be men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The Bible says that he has made to be a kingdom. And as the kingdom of God, We will reign with him for all eternity in that glorious place called heaven. I mean, Jesus could interrupt us today, right? The Bible says one day the Lord himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and then the dead in Christ who are alive and remain, or the dead in Christ will be raised, and then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and then we will always be with the Lord. Wouldn't it be something if while we're sitting here this morning, we heard that glorious shout? You know the problem? We live so unkingdom that for many of us, the second coming of Jesus Christ would be more of an interruption. We even say things like, well, you know, I want him to come back, but, but I've got this I want to see happen, and I've got this. I... Listen, we're headed somewhere this morning. Jesus is coming again. The king is going to reign. He's establishing a kingdom on this earth and will reign with him forever and ever. The whole story of the Bible is this idea of the big picture of God's kingdom. In heaven, there won't be hope, church. There'll just be the kingdom of God. Can I let you in on a secret this morning? One day... Hope Church will die. Now that's not very encouraging this morning, is it? I mean, as we sit around here today, there's a lot of life in this building. Amen? I mean, we just had some lively worship. God is on the move here. We're celebrating His activity. God is at work in our fellowship. We're rejoicing in what God's doing. But listen to me. One day, this church will die. How do you know that, Pastor? Here's how I know that. 
Because all churches die. I challenge you to get on an airplane and go to Ephesus or Colossae or Thessalonica. You're laughing, but it's the truth. The churches that Paul wrote to in the New Testament are gone. I was in Ephesus last May. I saw the ruins of the church at Ephesus. Nobody's meeting there. It's grown over. Nothing's happening. But here's what's here's the good news. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is alive and doing well. Now here's what that means. The local church is not the goal. We're a tool. The local New Testament church is a tool established by Jesus for the expanding of his kingdom. But we've gotten so off track in this thing of kingdom that we're like, if you were to drive by a construction site and you saw all the construction workers over on the side focused on the tools and the buildings not being built, that's a picture of the church in America. We got all our focus on the tool. Who can build the greatest church? Who can build the largest church? Who can have the most dynamic programmings? Who can have the most exciting worship service? We're so focused on the tool that we've lost sight of the building. Listen, I'm not saying the tool's not important. If you don't have the right tools, it's tough to accomplish the job that you've been given. But the tool is not what we're to be obsessed with and focused on. This is simply a gathering place to teach people about King Jesus. A a gathering place to disciple people in kingdom living and a launching pad for the expansion of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. And when a church... When a church understands that, it sees its place in the big picture. I'm going to skip over something right now, so we're going to keep moving. The hard part for me in preaching today is, this is 13 years of what God's been doing in my life. As I get on airplanes and travel all over the world and speak, this is what I speak on. So we could literally sit here for about six hours today. You all all right with that? Nobody said amen, so I'm going to skip that part. Let me skip over something, all right? Let me ask this question. How do we... How do we as a local church connect with the big picture? How do we make sure that as a tool, we're engaged in the real mission? I'm so glad you asked that this morning. (laughs) Take your Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 4. About three years ago, we studied through, three or four years ago, we studied through the book of Philippians together as a family of faith. And studying through the book of Philippians, God taught us some unbelievable things. But one of the passages of scripture that God really used in the life of our church in Philippians 4 is beginning in verse number 15. Because here's what the church at Philippi is. The church at Philippi is a church God used the apostle Paul to start. 
And listen to this. They got it. They understood the kingdom and the big picture. And they abandoned themselves to joining in. So I want to read for you a little bit of an excerpt of the letter that Paul wrote to them. Paul's writing them this letter after 10 years has gone by since God used him to plant this church. We're going to read kind of the closing paragraph. Philippians 4 verse 15. He said, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once from my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. If you know any of these verses, you probably know the next one, verse 19. It's our favorite, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. If you like that verse, say amen. amen. you got to understand something about that verse just in case we don't have time to get to it. It's conditional. It's not a blank check. It's not a promise that you can prosper regardless of what's going on in your life. What that is is a biblical promise that if you seek first the kingdom of God, God's got the rest of it. Don't worry about it. Verse 20. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now what I want to do is I want to share with you three truths that connect God's kingdom to the local church, to us as a fellowship right here in Las Vegas. Three truths. Here's the first one. When God births a church, it's always about something bigger. When God births a church, it's always about something bigger. So what do you mean by that? Well, look back at verse 15. Paul writes to them and he says, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel. That word first is an interesting Greek word. It literally means the beginning. Now, remember again, this is a letter that Paul is writing to them after God used him 10 years ago to plant this new church. So 10 years have gone by, and Paul's in the closing paragraph of the letter, and Paul says, you remember, don't you? You remember when the gospel began in Philippi? You remember when it all started? And when Paul said that, let me tell you what immediately came to their mind. We don't have time to look at all of it this morning, but when Paul said that, here's what came to their mind. They started thinking about Lydia. If you read in Acts chapter 16, Paul first arrived there on the, the, the shores there in, in, in Europe. And Paul went to the riverside and he met a woman named Lydia who was a, a business owner. And there Paul shared the gospel with this woman, Lydia. He, he shared with her the life-changing message of Jesus. And Lydia embraced the gospel. And the Bible says her whole household embraced the gospel. They became believers, followers of Christ. And they started meeting as a group in Lydia's house. She opened her home and 
said, hey, we can meet here. Paul, you've got to tell other people this. You've got to teach this. So she opened her home. And then Paul and some of his team met a girl in the streets of the city who was a slave girl. She was demon-possessed. And they were using her to manipulate dollars out of people. And Paul and his team cast demons out of her. And she gave her life to Christ. And she became a part of the nucleus of this new church being planted in Philippi. But these business leaders got so upset because of what Paul had done to this girl that they had him and Silas thrown in prison in Philippi. They're locked in jail for preaching the gospel. And while they're, while they're in jail at midnight, they're singing praises to God. And the Bible says that the, the ground began to shake and the doors came open and the jailer comes running in about to kill himself because he thinks all the prisoners have escaped. And if prisoners escape on your watch, the penalty is death. Paul says, don't hurt yourself. And the jailer looks at him and says, what must I do to be saved? And immediately Paul and Silas lead this man and his whole family to Christ. And so what's happened is this church was born in Philippi. As Paul began to engage the city, seeing Lydia and the slave girl and this jailer and their families begin to come to Christ, a church was born right there in Philippi. But as Paul's writing them 10 years later, Paul says, you remember that that was just the beginning. You see, we tend to think the church is the finish line. But what Paul says is the church being born and gathering and worshiping and praying and fellowshipping and doing... That's not the finish line. Paul says that's the starting line. When God births a church, it's always about something bigger. When God spoke into my life now over 14 years ago, and then we moved here 13 years ago. When God spoke into my life and my family about joining in his activity of launching a new church, relocated us here, and now here we sit 12 years into this planting experience together and look around you, God has birthed a wonderful, vibrant, multicultural, multi-generational, gospel-centered church. But listen to me, this is not the end, this is just the beginning. This is not the finish line. When God brought us together, it wasn't just so we could have a place to worship on the weekends. It wasn't just so we could have a place to get our needs met and get ministered to. When God birthed our church, he birthed it for something bigger. When God birthed our church, he had Las Vegas on his heart. When God birthed our church, he had the nations on his heart. This was evident in our service last weekend. Let me tell you what happened last weekend. Last weekend, in our 11 o'clock service, we had about 20 Chinese business leaders who, who don't speak English and who've never been in a Christian church ever before in their life. You say, how in the world do 20 Chinese business leaders who don't speak English. I mean, it was awesome. It was in our 11 o'clock service last week. And you'd have thought they were at a show downtown. I mean, they had cameras. They were taking pictures. It was awesome. They'd never been in a church before. They're in America for 10 days, three days in New York, three days in Los Angeles, four days in Las Vegas. How in the world they get here? Let me tell you how. We have a preschool teacher that teaches at a preschool here in our city. 
teaching two-year-olds. Sound exciting yet? First week of school, a little Chinese boy gets brought into class, speaks no English, two-year-old. Tough first day. Cries his whole way through the first day of school. Teacher does everything she can do to make him feel comfortable, make him feel welcome. Teacher leaves at the end of the day discouraged because she felt like with all of her efforts, this little guy will probably never be back. She gets home, opens up her email, and the mom of that little Chinese boy sends an email saying, since my son's got home, all he's talked about is wanting to get back and see his teacher at school tomorrow. So they build a relationship. This teacher, teaching two-year-olds, this Chinese mom, start cultivating that relationship. A couple weeks go by. She invites this Chinese mom, this little boy, who she finds out this Chinese lady is a believer, a follower of Christ, invites them to attend one of our services here at Hope. She works for a group that leads these influential business leader tour groups across the country. And she comes and visits our service, and the second week after visiting, she looks at this friend and says, I have an idea. I've got these people who are coming. I'd love to bring them to our church. What do you think? Now, the Americans, it took them a minute to say, okay. You know, they're like, wait a minute. What are we doing here? What, is this, this going to be okay? Are we going to cause any trouble? And so they pray through the service. After the service, talk to them and say, this is it. we got to do this. Last week, they come. All 20 of them are here. I spent 20 minutes with them after the 11 o'clock service last weekend. They told me through their translation that after being in New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas, the single greatest experience of their 10 days in America was being in an American Christian evangelical church. All they could say in English last week to me was, welcome to Shanghai. And they just kept saying it over and over. Welcome to Shanghai. Now, here's what I want you to see today, all right? I don't want you to miss this. Two-year-old preschool teacher doing what God called her to do, be a, be a preschool teacher. And God is opening the door to a nation and a people on the other side of the world. What am I saying to you? Here's what I'm saying. God is alive and at work in this world, and God has brought us into existence for something bigger than us. Who knows who you're going to meet this week? We serve a God that is on the move. And we've been born for something bigger. Listen, as a church, as individuals, every one of us, God brought you to himself for a relationship. But God desires to use that relationship with you for something bigger. We are not simply members of a church. We are citizens of a kingdom that is alive and expanding all over the world. Let me tell you the second truth we see in these verses. When God births a church, He invites us to join in His kingdom activity. Paul said here in verse 15, 
no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. The word shared here is an important word. If you know any Greek word in the Bible, you probably know this Greek word. This Greek word is the word koinonia. You ever heard that word before? We tend to have, we've even used it as an English substitute for the word what? Fellowship, right? Koinonia, fellowship, because that's really what the word means. The problem is when we say fellowship, we don't think about what the Bible's talking about. When we say fellowship, we think donuts and coffee, right? That's what we think the word koinonia means in the Greek language. But that's not what it means. The word koinonia literally means to share or to partner in the life of someone else. That's real biblical fellowship. It's sharing in the life of someone else. Here Paul writes to this church and he says, From the day the gospel began in Philippi, no church shared with me in the mission like you. If we are going to be a kingdom church, there are a couple of questions that we must wrestle with. And let me just take it off of us for a second. If any church is going to be a kingdom church, there are two questions they must wrestle with. And let me, let me say this. Mission is not an optional program in the life of a church. Any church that says we don't do mission, it says way more about them than anything else they'll say from a pulpit. Mission is not an option. Listen, mission is not something we do. Mission is why we were born. It's why we were born. And if we're going to be a kingdom church, there are two questions that we must wrestle with. Not just corporately in a staff office, but as small group leaders, as individuals, as families. These are questions that we together must wrestle with. Let me give you the two questions. Number one, where is God inviting us to join in his activity in our city? Where is God inviting us to join in his activity in our city? Number two, where is God inviting us to join in his activity in the world? I want you to look at those two questions. If you as an individual, if your family, if your small group, if we as a church are not wrestling with those two questions, we're not seeking first the kingdom of God. Where's God inviting us? We spend a lot of time praying for our church. You spend time praying for our city. Las Vegas should be different as a result of God birthing our church here. You know a question we should wrestle with at times? If God took our church out of this city, if he just came in, reached, grabbed it, and pulled it out, would anybody but our members notice or even care? Where in our city is God inviting us to join? And then where in the world, where, in the, where among the nations is God inviting us to join? You see, it's not just about us. And when you think individual, small group, it's not just about me. God's birthed us. God's brought us to himself for something bigger than us. 
Well, how do we answer those two questions? Well, at Hope, let me tell you how we answer those two questions. Number one, we answer it with the word resources. And here's what I mean by that. How has God uniquely wired our church to engage locally and globally in our city and among the nations? It's why we did a survey a few weeks ago of, of the domains, the jobs, skills, and talents that we have in our fellowship because every church is unique. No two churches are the same. Some churches have more educators or doctors or business people. There's a variety in every church, but God uniquely wires churches to engage in our city and around the world. And as we understand who we are as individuals, who we are as small groups, and who we are as a church, and we're able to articulate and understand how God has shaped shaped us and wired us and created us, it gives us an opportunity to think about how we can engage in our city and around the world. Second word that we use is relationships, resources and relationships. And here's what I mean by relationships. Who has God connected us with relationally to engage locally and globally? One of the things that you're going to see this weekend and next all along the back wall, all right? Look back down the back wall. Turn around and just look. You see those booths that are back there, all those things that are listed? Everything that's back there this weekend are local ministry partners that God has relationally connected us with where we can serve to join in what God's doing in our city. There are 10 of them back there, 10 local ministry partners that we know that God's relationally connected us to and in a resource capacity wired us to come alongside these ministries and to connect with them. Now, those aren't just up for looks today. By the end of the service, I'm going to challenge you to ask God about these 10. Lord, where? Where have you uniquely shaped me to engage in our city? And God, how have you gifted me and wired me and created me to serve? And God, which of these relationships do you want me to begin to pray for and engage in? The church at Philippi, they did this. Well, how do you do it? Well, as we study the church at Philippi, there were three unique things there are many we could point out, but I want to give you three ways that we can begin to engage as a church, both locally and globally. First of all, every church should cultivate a heart for the kingdom by praying. By praying. One of the ways that you can share in the life of these ministries that you see back there on the wall, and next weekend we're going to replace these ten with some of our global and church planting partners. You're going to see them next weekend. One of the ways that you can share in the life of these people, listen, if these people, if we could bring them all up on stage today and say, what is the one thing we could do for you? I promise you, every one of them would say above everything else, you can pray for us. The church at Philippi was a praying church. They prayed for Paul. Some of the greatest verses on prayer in all the Bible are found in this chapter. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us in this, this, this letter, Paul's writing, how they prayed for Paul and how Paul prayed for them. They shared in the work by praying. We tend to be so me-centered in our prayer life. It's all about what God can do for us. And if we would begin to think kingdom, it's not that it's wrong to pray for ourselves. I pray for the things in my life. 
But we should also be engaging and sharing in the mission by praying for these relationships that God's given us as a fellowship. Does prayer really make a difference? Oh, you better believe it does. I've told you this story many times before. I'm going to tell it again because there's a new part at the end I want you to hear. When God birthed our church, he did it through prayer. I've told you that when I got to Las Vegas, my first week on the field, I got a phone call from a lady named Letty Peralta. Letty was here in Las Vegas. She called me. She said, Pastor, can I tell you a story? I said, Letty, I don't know anybody in Las Vegas. You can tell me any story you want to tell me. So Letty began to tell me this story. She said, Pastor, I'm, I'm Filipino. She said, I moved from Philippines to Hong Kong to make money for my, Amer- for, for my family that lived in the Philippines. It was very poor. She said, while living in Hong Kong, I met an American family, and I moved in with them and became the caretaker of their home. She said, while living with this family, my family relocated from Hong Kong all the way to the United States of America, and they got me proper documentation, and I moved with them from Hong Kong all the way to the United States of America to a a community north of Atlanta, Georgia called Woodstock, Georgia. She said, while living in Woodstock, Georgia, I visited a church about six times called the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia. She said, I heard a pastor by the name of Johnny Hunt preach the gospel. God radically changed my life, but then my family relocated again from Woodstock, Georgia to Las Vegas, Nevada. She said, Pastor, I've been in Las Vegas, Nevada for a year and a half, and I've prayed every day that the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia would start a church in Las Vegas, Nevada. She said, Pastor, would you please tell me who sent you to Las Vegas? (laughs) Now here I've just relocated my family 2,000 miles away from everybody we know. And let me tell you what I found out right then. We didn't come to start anything. We were just getting in on something God was already doing. In response to the prayers of one Filipino lady. Here we are 13 years later. We've now seen over 3,500 people come to Christ. We've been involved in planting 16 or 18 new churches. We're working on four continents around the world. And people will call and they'll say, hey, what did you do? And I, I have to be honest and say, one lady from the Philippines asked God to do it. And we've been riding a wave of the favor of God ever since. But here's a piece of the story you hadn't heard. I'd not heard it until about a month ago. Something that just happened within the last six, eight weeks. A man in our church named John Souza. John came to Christ here at Hope. (coughs) John recently on business was taken to Hong Kong. And while John was in Hong Kong, he heard that in the culture in Hong Kong, it is very common for Filipino and Malaysian workers to come, specifically ladies, to move there to work in the affluent houses in the city. Six days a week they can be in the home, but on Sunday they're by, by law that they have to be out of the home. And so they they crowd up on the footbridges. I want to put a picture up on the screen of these footbridges. They they crowd up on the footbridges. All these are domestic workers from Philippines and Malaysia who work in Hong Kong during the week, but they're asked now when John was there and he heard this He remembered the story of Letty. Letty would have been one of those ladies 20 years ago sitting right there. John was so moved. Here's what he wrote on his Facebook page. Because of Letty's prayers, hope was born. My girlfriend invited me to church and because hope existed, I was saved. 
I married that amazing woman and foster adopted four of the most amazing kids ever. God is bigger than you and me. Now I'm walking these footbridges and praying that God is at work to forever change the lives of someone else across the world, all because of the prayers of one of these women. Full circle. It started with a little lady sitting on a footbridge praying, came all the way from Hong Kong to Las Vegas, Nevada, saw a guy give his life to Christ, get married, begin to raise these four beautiful children that they'd adopted through foster care, and now sends him back to Hong Kong, and he's walking along those same footbridges praying for God to do it all over again. You and I can join in the big picture of what God's doing by praying. Let me give you a second thing we can do. Every church should prioritize the kingdom by sending. By sending. Say, so what do you mean by that? Well, in verse 18 of the text that I read for you, Paul says, I've received everything from Epaphroditus. Now, it's very important that we understand who Epaphroditus is in this passage of Scripture, right? I mean, you're going to get to heaven someday and bump into Epaphroditus, and he's going to say, did you like what Paul wrote about me in the Bible? And you're going to be like, oh, yeah, brother, it was great. You're going to look at somebody and say, who is this guy, right? I mean, Epaphroditus, that sounds some, like something you take medicine to get rid of, right? I mean, oh, he's come down with a case of Epaphroditus. Who is Epaphroditus? Let me tell you who he is. He was just a regular guy in Philippi that either Lydia or the jailer or the slave girl, or somebody else in that fellowship. After Christ had changed their lives, they talked to Epaphroditus and said, Epaphroditus, i got to tell you the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And they shared with Epaphroditus the gospel of Jesus. And Epaphroditus embraced the gospel, gave his life to Christ, and became a part of that little fellowship meeting in Lydia's home that we call the church at Philippi. And one day the church at Philippi said, we're going to take an offering and we're going to send it to Paul. We want to share in his ministry by giving. But before we do that, we need somebody who's willing to go and take the offering to Paul. Anybody willing to go? And like in most churches, when that question gets asked, everybody tries not to make eye contact, right? Epaphroditus sits there for a minute and he goes... I'll go. I mean, I'm kind of new to this. I'm no preacher. I'm sure no theologian. I'm definitely not a missionary. But I can carry a sack of money. You say, how do you know that's who he was? Well, look on the screen at Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. Paul mentions him earlier. Listen to what he said. Paul said, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. The word messenger there means one commissioned and sent out. Let me tell you who Epaphroditus was. He's the first recorded short-term missionary in the Bible. He went out on a short-term mission trip. I don't know if it was a week, six weeks, six months. I don't know how long he went. But Epaphroditus took that bag of money. He went to Paul. He delivered it. He shared with him that the church at Philippi wanted to engage in what he was doing. And then Epaphroditus came back to the church at Philippi. You say, how do you know he came back? 
where do you think we got the letter to the Philippians from? No joke. The letter to Philippi was a thank you letter for the gift that Paul wrote and gave it to Epaphroditus to bring back to the church as a report about how God was using their gifts to expand his kingdom in other parts of the world. So here comes Epaphroditus back with this letter filled with this wonderful theological truth and he delivers it. But Epaphroditus was just a regular person who put his yes on the table and said, I'll be involved. Have you ever asked God how he wants to use your job, skill, vocation for his kingdom? You say, well, I, I give. I, I'm, a, I'm a giver. Listen, giving is great. We're, we're going to mention that when it's here. But that's just one little way we can involve ourselves. Epaphroditus uses gifts and his abilities to engage. Have you ever thought that God gave you the job that he gave you because he wants to make a difference in Las Vegas? And God put you here as a missionary with a career to be salt and light in this city? Have you ever thought that God maybe has blessed you with the platform that you have? Not so you can plan a great retirement, but that God blessed you with the platform that you have because he's thinking more about what's going to happen in Revelation chapter 5. Men from every tribe, tongue, people, nation around the throne of Jesus. And he's given you that opportunity to use it to engage in his mission of carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. Rick Warren said it this way. He said, success in a church is not measured by its seating capacity. It's measured by its sending capacity. We got that backwards, don't we? We don't really have time to talk about it, but here's the third way. Paul says every church should invest in the kingdom by giving. That's what these verses are really all about. It's about giving and investing in the kingdom of God. Paul talks about how they've given consistently. He said you gave more than once. You've given sufficiently. You've met my needs. You've given abundantly. I've received everything in full and have an abundance. 2 Corinthians, he writes and tells how they've given sacrificially. They invested in what God was doing through Paul. Last thing I'll say to you is this. Not only when God births a church, it's for something bigger. And when God births a church, he's inviting us to join in his activity. But here's the last thing. When God births a church, it's for his glory. That's why Paul closes these verses by saying, Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen to me. God deserves to be glorified among all peoples of the earth. And God has brought us to himself and desires to use us to make his name known to the ends of the earth for His glory. His glory. His glory. That's why the psalmist said it this way in Psalm 67, God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear Him. God doesn't bless us so that we can sit around and focus on our blessings. 
God doesn't bless us so we can compare our blessing with somebody else's blessing. God blesses us that through us all the ends of the earth may fear Him. The church, the kingdom. Are we a kingdom church? Is your small group a kingdom small group? Is your family a kingdom family? As an individual, are you a kingdom follower of Christ? Seek first.